The audio clip you've just heard contains the voices of 16-year-old Charmaine Marie and 48-year-old Johan de Yaga. They're speaking in Afrikaans, and the translation is as follows. Charmaine says, Your hands are cold. Diogo responds, I'm trying to wake you up. Charmaine tells him to take his hands off her, laughing nervously. She then says, We can't sleep together. I'm underage, you know that. Diogo asks how old Charmaine is, a question he very well knows the answer to, and she replies that she's 16. You are hearing the desperate attempt of a young girl to protect herself while in the clutches of a monster. A monster who would, just days after Charmaine had recorded this audio clip, viciously take her life. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is case file number one, the murder of Charmaine Marie. I chose Charmaine's story to cover first, because I hadn't heard about the case before I saw it on a short documentary on television. The documentary is by a company called Sabido Productions, and you can find it on YouTube. I will put the link in the podcast information. It is really excellent coverage of the case. I was surprised that I hadn't heard of it, because being a true crime junkie, I do tend to follow cases like this quite voraciously. But then I realized that Charmaine's murder took place just a month before Oscar Pistorius shot Reva Steenkamp in February 2013. Now, even non-crime junkies know how that case exploded all over the media. So Charmaine was pushed aside. Her story was relegated to third-page news, while South Africa took in every salacious detail of the Oscar trial. Charmaine's story is therefore a perfect example of the type of case I want to cover here on True Crime South Africa. She may not have been famous, or a model, or dating a superstar athlete, but Charmaine deserved the same support from the public as Reva did, for they were both taken far too soon, and neither deserved the horrendous endings they got. This is Charmaine's story. Charmaine Marie was born and spent most of her life living in the small mining town of Creel in Mpumalanga with just 15,000 residents and an unemployment rate of 23%. Creel has a relatively large part of their community living under the breadline. And sadly, the Marais family could be included in that number. Charmaine, her mother Katrina, her father and brother Jean, lived a difficult life in meager lodgings without electricity and struggled to put food on the table. According to her mother, Charmaine's wish was always to be able to provide for her parents so that they no longer had to struggle. Charmaine was a talented sketch artist and hoped to one day open a tattoo studio. Her mother describes her as glowing and at her happiest when she had a piece of paper and a pencil in her hand. When she was 10 years old, Charmaine and her family moved in with Hunty Fenter, and Charmaine quickly wormed her way into Hunty's heart. 
Hansi describes Charmaine as a gentle girl who loved to care for children and helped raise Hansi's grandchild. Hansi and Charmaine remained very close throughout her life. When Charmaine was 12 years old, Hansi took her on holiday with them to Durban, Charmaine's first trip outside of Creole, and describes the look of amazement on the young girl's face when she saw the sea for the first time. Little did either know that her next and final trip to a seaside town would be her last. At 16 years old, Charmaine was no longer in school, and although the reason for this is not publicly available, comments made by other players in the story point to Charmaine struggling to balance school and a difficult life of poverty. Being a naturally artistic person, Charmaine may have had difficulty fitting into the mainstream school environment, but this is only my opinion and not based on any evidence I've found. Hansi Fenter alluded to Charmaine being intensely afraid of men that she didn't know. I haven't seen any confirmation for a solid reason behind this fear, and sometimes small children do display irrational fears like this. But later on in Charmaine's story, this comment takes on a darker context. Charmaine had been friends with Kristen White, a fellow Creole resident, for many years. And when Kristen announced that she was moving to Cape Town in January 2013 to live with her mother, Charmaine decided to join her. Charmaine believed that there was a future for her in Cape Town. Perhaps she could finish school or get a job and send money to her parents to ease their suffering. To Charmaine, Cape Town held the promise of a better life and all the opportunities she didn't have in small-town Creole. She looked to the big city with the wide eyes of the child woman she was, and at that moment, the only thing she feared was the aeroplane flight that would get her there. Those who were close to Charmaine begged her not to go. Hansi Fenter, Katrina Marie, and a childhood friend Nikita Small, who would be pulled into the traumatic events that followed, all state that they were unhappy with Charmaine's decision. They would all miss her, but their concerns went far deeper than that when they found out the details of how her trip would begin. Kristen White's mother, Carol, was happy for Charmaine to join them in Cape Town, but she explained that she had booked a boat cruise for her and her children from the 7th to the 11th of January, and it would be better if Charmaine joined them after they returned from the cruise. Charmaine was concerned about flying alone, as it would be her first flight, and she was desperate to accompany Kristen when she left for Cape Town on the 3rd of January. Carol recalls explaining to Katrina that this wasn't ideal, as it meant Charmaine would have to spend four days alone in Cape Town with just Carol's partner, Johan, for company in their house, as he would not be joining the cruise. There's no detail available about how Charmaine felt about this arrangement, considering her fear of strange men, but it seems that the excitement of the trip, and perhaps the boundless courage of youth, convinced her that it would pass quickly, and she considered it more important to be able to fly with Kristen. Charmaine and Kristen arrived in Cape Town on the 3rd of January 2013. They arrived at Carol White's home in Craffentine, located in the northern suburbs of Cape Town. Craffentine got its name from the number of crows, the word cry 
means crow in Afrikaans, that nest in the area. The girls were welcomed with Christmas presents, held over for them from the recent festivities, and Carol took them out to dinner on several occasions. Carol described Charmaine as having been shy at first, but she soon opened up and displayed all of the normal naughtiness of a teenager, along with her own daughter. Carol tried to get Charmaine placed back into school, but she was deemed a problem child and rejected by local schools in Cape Town. She had then set up an interview for Charmaine at the local USAVE, which is a supermarket, to work as a cashier. Four days after having arrived in Cape Town, 16-year-old Charmaine Marie was left in the care of Yohanda Yaga, Carol White's boyfriend. Yohanda Yaga, 48, and Carol had been in a relationship at this point for four years. She would later describe him as a good partner, a quiet man who loved cars and belonged to a car club. Johan worked as a mechanic. A schoolmate of Diago's would claim that Diago suffered severe beatings at the hands of his parents as a child and emotional abuse from his mother. He and his siblings were mercilessly teased at school because they were poor. He was seen as a below-average student, but his love of cars was evident even at that age and became his obsession. In watching Carol describe Johan, I get the sense that there are certain things she's not saying about prior behavior. I'm in no way saying that she knew what he really was, but I'm sure that when someone you love proves to be hiding such dark secrets, hindsight becomes 2020, and I can only imagine that Carol would have obsessed over every detail of their lives together after the revelations came to light. No doubt she would have taken on some survivor's guilt, a guilt, of course, which is not hers to carry. Carol is the mother of a daughter the same age as Charmaine was, and I am sure that she never would have left them alone together if she had for one minute thought that Charmaine could be in danger. She was, though. Charmaine was in very grave danger. The monster in Diaga did not take long to come out after he was left alone with the young, defenseless Charmaine. Almost immediately, Charmaine began to complain by text to friends and family in Creole that he was behaving strangely toward her and that she was afraid of him. On the 8th and 9th of January, Charmaine sent text messages saying that Diaga was making sexual advances toward her, touching her inappropriately and asking if he could accompany her to the bathroom to wash her back. The teenager reported to her mother that she was hungry, as Diago was withholding food from her because she refused to have sex with him. Her mother, desperate to assist her daughter, but without any means to do so, and a thousand two hundred kilometers away from her, told her daughter to run into the kitchen and take a piece of bread so that she could eat. She asked her daughter why she didn't just leave the house. Charmaine reported, and it is unclear at which stage this was, that she was unable to get out of the house. On the 9th of January, Charmaine would start recording voice notes of Diago's advances, seemingly without his initial knowledge. The audio file I played in the beginning of this podcast episode is one of those. There are 15 audio files in existence, 
all of which were played at Johan Diago's later trial. It is absolutely chilling to hear a grown man trying to convince a young girl to have sex with him, minimizing the action and attempting to make it sound quite normal for a 48-year-old man to have sex with an underage teenager. Charmaine, to her credit, keeps her cool, although she must have been completely terrified, and responds to his advances with logical statements that she is underage and wishes to remain a virgin until marriage, and ultimately that she doesn't wish to have sex with him. It is quite clear from the recordings, in my opinion, that Charmaine is doing her best not to make him angry, and also that Diago is not taking no for an answer. In a move which showed Charmaine's wisdom beyond her years, and perhaps her terrifying understanding of her desperate situation, she sent these audio files to her childhood friend in Creel, Nikita Small. On hearing the sound of her young friend being accosted by a grown man, Nikita phoned and spoke with Diago. She pretended to be Charmaine's mother and told him that she was aware of what he was doing to Charmaine and that he had better stop or she would call the police. Diaga, ever the chameleon, laughed and said that Charmaine must have misunderstood. He claimed that he would never try to have sex with a 16-year-old. Nikita was not convinced and contacted the Crafentine police station. In perhaps one of the most disturbing failures of policing I've ever heard of, Nikita contacted the police station in Cryfontaine four times in the four days that Charmaine was being harassed by Diaga. She explained the situation and that an underage girl was alone in a house with a 48-year-old man and he was making sexual advances towards her. She further explained that Charmaine knew no one in Cape Town and had no means of escape. The police promised Nikita that they would send a car to the house to collect Charmaine and bring her to the police station for safety until Carol and Kristen returned. They didn't. Nikita recalls that she told Charmaine to keep looking out the window for the police car and to get their attention when they arrived. The thought of this young girl in such a terrifying situation, waiting for the cavalry to arrive to save her, looking out the window in hope, perhaps praying, and all she ever saw was an empty road, and then Diaga returning from work, and it was too late. Charmaine made another attempt during that period to get help. It is unclear on which day this happened, but she is reported to have run out of the house and encountered a neighbour a few houses down, she explained to the man that she was in a terrible situation and she needed money for a bus ticket to get back home. The man declined to give her money, but gave her his cell phone number to call if she needed help. I have no disdain for this man's decision. It is a common ruse for young girls to approach people in the street with tall stories of desperation to get money. These girls are often drug addicts or simply scammers, and there's little doubt that this is probably what the man assumed Charmaine was doing. Perhaps he just did not have any money to give her. I don't think that any of us can imagine what was going through Charmaine's mind at that time. Was it fear that made her return to the house, or did she possibly not realize the true danger she was in? 
Hunty and Nikita report that all the communication with Charmaine stopped on the 10th of January around 7 o'clock. Nikita tried to call her around 9 o'clock and her phone was off. She immediately felt that something was very wrong as Charmaine had never let her phone battery die and especially since it had been such a vital source of contact with the world in the last few days. Kristen and Carol arrived back into Cape Town's port from their boat cruise around 5 o'clock on the morning of the 11th of January. Their phones had no signal while at sea, but as they docked and reconnected, Kristen's phone sprung to life, flooding with terrified messages from her friend Charmaine. Carol recalled that she was packing in her room when Kristen came in, extremely upset, and showed her the messages from Charmaine and other friends, saying that Diaga had been trying to have sex with Charmaine. At the time, Carol had no idea what to think, but calmed Kristen with the indication that soon both Diaga and Charmaine would be at the port to collect them, and they could sort all of this out. When they disembarked, Diaga was waiting. Charmaine was nowhere to be seen. Carol immediately asked Diaga where she was and confronted him with the messages Kristen had received. As he had with Nikita, Diaga laughed off the allegations as ridiculous and said that Charmaine had gone to buy cigarettes at the shop and hadn't returned in time to accompany him to the port, but he was sure she would be back at the house by the time they got home. They could then have a chat and clear this whole mess up. Kristen, Carol and Diaga returned to an empty house in Craftentine. Charmaine was not there and they immediately started driving around the neighbourhood looking for her without success. Carol instructed Diago to go to the police station with Kristen and report Charmaine as missing. The next day, Carol and Kristen had missing flyers printed and started to distribute them and put them up around the neighborhood. They returned to the police again, who had no news of Charmaine's whereabouts. On the Saturday after Charmaine disappeared, an aunt of hers received a text sent from Charmaine's number stating that she was at a bus station. Carol gave this information to the police. They responded by saying that there were too many bus stations to search. Later that day, Carol and Johan were called into the police station and questioned, according to Carol, by seven policemen. They asked her about the flyers they'd been putting up, and as the questioning continued, Carol became distraught and shouted at Johan that the situation was all his fault because he tried to sleep with Charmaine. At this point, Johan was taken into a separate questioning room. Carol, who was still under the impression that Charmaine was missing, but presumably unharmed, was approached by a female police officer who proceeded to give her her condolences. Confused, Carol looked to the male officer in charge, who berated the female officer, saying, we haven't told her yet. They then informed Carol that they believed that they had found the body of Charmaine Marie. They asked about certain identifying characteristics, such as her belly button ring. Nikita Small, Charmaine's childhood friend, who had so courageously stood up for her in the past few days, received a telephone call on her birthday, informing her that Charmaine was dead. Nikita was at work and collapsed on hearing the news 
and was never able to return to that place of work again. The most harrowing details of her friend's demise were yet to be uncovered. Police discovered the remains of Charmaine Marais in three different locations. Her torso, including the head and pelvic region, were found first, burned in an open field. De Yaga would later lead police to her legs in a second location, and her arms would be found in a box underneath De Yaga's car in his garage at Carol's home. De Yaga admitted to carrying her legs in a backpack on his motorbike and discarding them off the side of the highway. When police searched Carol's home, they asked her to show them all the items that belonged to Diago. In his work jacket, police found Charmaine's cell phone. During his interrogation, Diago had claimed that he had thrown the cell phone out of his car. In fact, Diago had used Charmaine's phone to text the message to her aunt, claiming that she was at a bus station. He had also attempted to delete all the audio recordings from her phone. Thankfully, Charmaine had the presence of mind to send them to Nikita and not just store them on her phone. The trial of Johan Diaga started in Blue Downs Magistrates Court on the 11th of November 2013. He was charged with murdering and mutilating Charmaine Marie. Diaga admitted to dismembering Charmaine's body saying that he was extremely intoxicated at the time and due to his state, it felt no different than slaughtering a goat. He denied, however, murdering Charmaine. His claim was that on the morning of the 11th of January, when he needed to collect Carol and Kristen from the port, Charmaine had been taking too long to get ready and he had become irritated with her and grabbed her arm. Diaga claimed that Charmaine had slipped and fallen, hitting her head. After some time passed and she did not regain consciousness, Diaga said that he realized she was dead and dragged her body into a nearby drain. He then left to collect Carol and Kristen. He waited until they left the house the next day to search for Charmaine and then tried to remove her body from the drain. He claimed that he could not remove it because it had swollen in size, so he had to dismember it. The medical examiner stated during her testimony that there were no head injuries visible on Charmaine and that her likely cause of death involved strangulation, as dark marks were apparent on her thyroid muscle. Diago was not charged with sexual assault, as there was no physical evidence of rape or interference. It was, however, deemed extremely likely that he had raped Charmaine, as when her body parts were recovered, the legs were still clothed in tracksuit pants, but no panties, t-shirt or bra were present, suggesting that she had been in a state of undress and then partially redressed before being dismembered. Diaga strongly denied the allegations and claimed when presented with the audio evidence that Charmaine had recorded herself, that when he suggested they sleep together, he did not mean have sex. In a wildly narcissistic version, Diaga actually tried to convince the court that he had meant they should sleep side by side. He further claimed that he thought Charmaine was trying to seduce him and that she had shown him a tattoo in her pelvic region after having pulled down her pants in front of him. In a sad reminder of previous comments made by those close to Charmaine, Diaga claimed that she had told him she had been raped when she was younger. 
The medical examiner stated that she had not seen any tattoos in Charmaine's pelvic region and further stated that she believed Diaga had chosen to burn only the torso and pelvis to remove any evidence of his DNA. The evidence to prove Diaga's guilt was overwhelming, but there was more devastation to come. Police had taken Diaga's DNA when he was arrested, and it would soon be revealed in court that Charmaine was not his first victim. Hiltina Alexander was an 18-year-old prostitute who was found raped, mutilated and murdered in Atlantis in 2008, 40 kilometers from where she was last seen getting into a vehicle with a prospective client. Johan Diago was questioned at the time, but the witnesses who saw Hiltina entering Diago's vehicle failed to come forward and he was released without charge. After his arrest for Charmaine's murder, Diaga's DNA was matched to material found under Hiltina's fingernails. He was charged with her rape and murder. Something that really bothers me about this is that, according to the sources I found, Diaga's DNA was not compared to the sample from Hiltina in 2008. He was questioned, and the police clearly had probable cause to do so. If the match had been obtained in 2008, Charmaine would still be alive. Once again, Jan admitted to being with Hiltina on the night of her murder, but denied being responsible for her death. He came up with another wild story of having picked up Hiltina because his friend, coincidentally also called Johan, had expressed interest in having relations with a prostitute. Diaga said that he had told his friend he knew where to find one because he had once given her a lift, and then claimed to have taken Hiltina to the other Johan, and he last saw her alive and well in his friend's bed when he left the home the next morning. To explain the DNA under Hiltina's fingernails, Diaga claimed that the girl had, without prompting, played with his private parts while he drove her to his friend's house. An expert witness testified in court that the type of DNA found under Hiltina's fingernails was not touch DNA, which is transferred to a surface through touch but rather DNA transferred from scratching another person's skin with force. He also said that Hiltina had wanted to have sex with him, but he did not want to. This seems to be a running theme in the stories that Diaga fabricates. He would like others to believe that he is a magnet to young women who continually throw themselves at him. A forensic psychiatrist testifying in the trial stated that he believed Diaga should be classified as a serial killer. It is very likely that there are other victims of Diaga, as it is uncommon for a serial killer to have a period of inactivity as long as the five years between Hiltina and Charmaine's murders. Serial killers are known to have cooling-off periods, but five years is uncharacteristically long. Johan de Jager was sentenced to three life sentences for the murder of Charmaine Marie and the rape and murder of Hiltina Alexander. He was given a further six years for dismembering Charmaine and three months for stealing her cell phone. De Jager appeared relaxed as his sentence was handed down and even smirked at one point. Nikita Small attended the trial in Cape Town 
and described the murder of her best friend as the devastating period in her life, which has ultimately changed her forever. Carol White is shown on film, smoking and crying, as she explains how she is no longer able to trust anyone and hardly ever leaves the house. She's moved from the home that she shared with Tiaga and does not share her new address with anyone outside her immediate family. She says that Diaga sent some ex-inmates from Polsmore Prison, where he's serving his sentence, to her house, to tell her that he was sorry and that he did not know why he did the things he did. He claims the devil must have been inside him. Katrina Marie, Charmaine's mother, says that she and her husband barely talk anymore because every conversation is filled with pain. She still expects Charmaine to walk in the door, but knows she never will again. There are so many instances in this case where Charmaine was let down by those who should have protected her. The worst failure to act was certainly by the Crafontein police, who had four opportunities to assist a 16-year-old girl in clear danger, but chose instead to leave her in the clutches of a monster. I've been unable to find any statements from the police to explain their inaction, and honestly, I don't know that any explanation would suffice. Sex workers' organisations demonstrated outside the court during Diaga's file, and on hearing the guilty verdict, stated that they finally felt that the justice system was taking sex workers' cases seriously. In the end, Charmaine could not save herself, but she ensured that she got her own justice through the audio recording she made and sent. Charmaine would not have known it, but her bravery and clarity of thought in that terrifying situation also managed to get justice for another young girl, Hiltina Alexander. That is Charmaine's legacy. She was a sweet, kind young lady who touched the hearts of many. She was also hugely courageous and possessed a spirit and wisdom far beyond her years. She may have become a victim, but she managed to achieve what no one else had in 48 years of Diaga's life. She exposed his lies and evil deeds and saved countless girls who may have fallen victim to him in the future. Charmaine Marais was her own hero. Thank you for listening to our first podcast episode at True Crime South Africa. If you'd like to hear future episodes, you can visit our website at truecrimesouthafrica.com or download episodes on Spotify or wherever you access your podcast content. As we are in the very early stages of this podcast, we appreciate any constructive feedback so that we can continue to improve this podcast for you, our valued listener. Please interact with us on our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And please review us on the podcatcher you use. I will leave a full list of resources I use to research this case in the podcast information. I look forward to chatting to you in our next episode.